0: This is the GBA Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion series, brought to you by the GBA Podcast. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, is a term often used in the workplace, but its meaning is sometimes not well understood. Within each episode of this series, we hope to shed light and awareness on the DEI landscape in our industry. We'll discuss the pipeline to diversity and inclusion in the geoprofessions, identify key allies in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and discuss how unconscious bias can contribute to inequity in STEM education and career development. GPA is committed to increasing diversity and promoting inclusion and equity in the geoprofessional industry. We hope you can share these episodes within your organization. Please join us as we explore these topics in a four part series on DEI. This is episode three of our series, and today we'll be discussing allies in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Allies can be essential to drive systemic improvement to workplace policies, practice, and culture. But what does it mean to be an ally? How can allies impact the recruitment process and improve the retention of our employees? And what can we do to create more allies? Please join us as we discuss these and more topics in this very important conversation. Today we'll be speaking to Charlie Head, founding principal at Sandboard Head & Associates. Charlie is the co-founder of Sandboard Head and he serves as the sh- chair of the company's board of directors and oversees the implementation of the firm's strategic market. Charlie active ste- steers initiatives related to the expansion of the firm's services and markets, and he remains active in Sandboard Head's professional practice with particular emphasis on environmental assessments and remediation, including due diligence, for clients globally. He's also past president of the of GBA. Charlie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Veronica. Glad to be here.
0: Thanks for joining. Um, we know that you have been involved with Sandboard Head's um, initial DI initiatives. So we are really happy to hear that some of our member firms are taking some actions towards I- improving the diversity, equity, and inclusion in our industry. So, Charlie, as a leader in our industry, what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to you? And why are they important for you?
1: Well, that's a really big question. So maybe we could break it down a little bit. But just, I think, by way of introduction, uh, first of all, as a matter of fairness, DEI is simply the right thing to do. But if we look through the lens of our business, We are now and have been, frankly, for most of my career in a war for talent. And if we don't do something to change the trajectory and bring more people into the fold, and I'm really talking about all people, including people in underrepresented groups, we're going to have a difficult time growing and sustaining our businesses. Uh, This is something that is relatively new here at Sanborn Head. Uh, We just started looking at DEI in a formal way about a year ago. And so in my talk today, really, I'm still on a path as a learner. Uh, Certainly not an expert, but I'm glad to share with you uh, what I've learned.
0: Absolutely, Charlie. And I just want to say none of us are fully experts. We are all learning. I'm not an expert. I'm a geotechnical engineer. Um, but I am really passionate about diversity equity, and inclusion, and your point of sustainability and, like you said, a war for talent is one of my main motivators. Also, to making sure that we we have the best talent that is going to um, move forward our industry, and we're not missing out on talent. I'm sure that you've you've had issues before in the past, probably trying to find good candidates as I've. Had, as I also have kind of issues in the past trying to find good candidates. And if we kind of increase the talent pool, that's only gonna elevate competition, elevate our industry. Is that something that you've kind of are in line with what you're thinking right now?
1: Yeah, well, it certainly is. And, um, you know, I think we will probably talk about it in a little more depth later in our discussion. Uh, But clearly, uh, if we look just at the gender issue alone, uh, it's been my experience for the entirety of my career that although we start with staff at approximately equal male-female mix, uh, by the time we get to management or particularly C-suite levels, that ratio is very different, and that really hasn't changed over time. So so just looking there, that's a, a major issue. Uh, but certainly, we can extend that to uh, apply to people of color, uh, people who are non-gender conforming, LBGTQ community, uh, the whole spectrum of underrepresented groups.
0: Absolutely, all well, that is so important. So just as a follow-up question, um, what has been your experience with new diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at Standboard Hats? Um, what are you guys doing to address the issue internally? And I understand you guys are just starting, so a- anything that you guys can add to um, for for our listeners?
1: Yeah, so let me let me tell you a little bit about our journey and how we started it because I'm I'm really excited about it, and I, and like you, Veronica, I'm also become really passionate about it. Uh, about a year ago, a little bit less, we formed um, after careful consideration by the board of directors, and looking to some of our peer firms and what they were doing uh, for DEI, we formed a task force, and the task force is really comprised of myself and our HR director, but we're not the leaders of the task force. We are members of the task force. We asked for volunteers and at the end of the day, we ended up with 11 men and women, about equal numbers of both. Uh, We have uh, people of color, we have non-gender conforming uh, people on the committee and we formed, formed excuse me, a task force. Uh, We hired an outside firm to uh, help lead us and facilitate this process and we launched uh, the task force with the objective of first engaging in some real deep learning. And once we had taken on that, after four or five months, we began to turn and look at what are the kinds of things that we might begin to do as a fir- firm. With the objective that at the end of this year, we will be providing to the board of directors a plan, uh, sunsetting the task force, Probably turning this task force into a full time committee, um, moving forward to implement uh, DEI policies uh, and other again c- c- continued learning uh, experiences for the firm going forward.
0: Well, that sounds great, and it really sounds very much in line with a lot of our initiatives in our own um, DEI committee within GBA, which, just as you started as a task force last year, and during the task force, it was, like you said, a very introspective period where we learned the pipeline of our industry. And we, we talked in, in length about that in, in our podcast and, and also within our own committee. So it sounds like you, you're heading in a direction very similar to a lot of our peers.
1: I think that um, our feeling is that if we try to mandate something from the top, if we try to drive training for DEI, that's just not going to work. It has to be really something that people embrace that they become passionate about that they can really begin to understand at more of a grassroots level why this is so important and what are the things that they can begin to we all can can begin to do about it uh, in our group we've had people who are have been with a firm as long as i have almost 30 years and we've had people who have been with the firm for six months We've had uh, uh, senior people, we've had more junior people, so a variety, a variety of experience for the firm. And boy, that's brought some really uh, interesting perspective and challenges to the discussion. Um, and one of the most wonderful things is the openness with which we've been able to have these discussions and the growth, and the trust that's grown between the team And how much that's done already to create awareness is that, frankly, I don't think any of us really have when we started this journey.
0: Well, it really sounds like you guys are creating a safe space for your employees to now start to speak up with any sort of concerns they might have had.
1: Veronica, this is the start of it. And this is something that I hope that we can begin to extend on a more firm-wide basis. As I said, we're really just at the beginning of the journey and And really, the how is, that's challenging. And and I'm not sure I can tell you the how, maybe give you a few thoughts and ideas. But um, uh, again, we're still formulating that here at our firm. Um, We did launch uh, just recently a DEI survey to see if we could sort of tease out some of the thoughts and attitudes and perspectives of a broader range of our employees uh, I was super pleased to see that we had an 85% response rate to that survey, and I was also super pleased to see that the majority of people who work here believe that DEI is either important or very important. And that gives us a lot, a lot to work with, I think, going forward.
0: Well, I got to say, uh, I'm very impressed about that. Um, one thing that I was going to say before you mentioned about the surveys. My my podcast episode before this, which at the time of this recording hasn't aired yet, was with a um a senior diversity and inclusion member of um FDA, so the Food and Drug Administration. And she pretty much just hands all a giant agency of federal employees within diversity, equity, and inclusion. And her job is to do surveys every year in and out. Um and I, I learned a lot about her perspective as well. So it's like you said doesn't necessarily start from the top down, but you have to understand your audience to say, you have to understand what your employees are looking for so you can help them better and address their needs. So it sounds like you guys are, are, are really doing something great.
1: Well, it, I think this is a good start. Uh, it certainly gives us a nice baseline with which to measure some progress uh, over the future, but it seemed to me that we were, we were at least beginning in a good place.
0: Absolutely. It does seem to me as well. So I commend you for that. So really what we're here to talk about is allyship and and how can senior leaders become allies of other under underrepresented groups. And as you know, unfortunately, our industry, the geoprofessional industry, is one of the least diverse industries in STEM. Um, there's been several articles about that and um, the data that we gathered, especially from the U.S. Census Bureau suggests so. So to invoke change in our industry, leaders like yourself we need allies um, to, to help support and advocate for underrepresented groups. So for you personally or professionally, what does it mean to be an ally for diversity, equity, and inclusion?
1: Yeah, it's another, another big question. Um, Is something that I've, I've thought, um, thought about quite a bit. Um, my experience, I should say, isn't just uh, with DEI, isn't just related to my work at Sanborn Head. About the same time, maybe a little bit earlier than we started a DEI initiative here, I became very involved in a racial justice initiative in an outside group. So I've really had a chance to look at this through a couple of different lenses. And I think something about being an ally was something maybe up to about a year ago I had never really given consideration to, formally that is. Uh, my awareness just wasn't wasn't there. But clearly, if we look at, you know, what is an ally, basically? An ally is really someone who is not a member of an underrepresented group, but who holds, holds a position of privilege and power and can advocate and take action to support that less representative group without taking over their voice. And so if we start there, I think... From a company perspective, the answer might be a little more difficult to answer. So let me look at it from a personal perspective. And I think this is something that is really a a kind of a cultural shift we need to think about in our firm. And I think that shift needs to occur first and foremost with those who are in a position of privilege and power. And so I think there are several things that are important. And, and things that we could do personally. Um, I think being aware, first of all, of bias and embracing a growth mindset is really important. I think we need to be open to change. I think we need to be open to looking at ourselves a little bit more critically. Uh, hopefully, we can have continue to have somewhat of a sense of humor about ourselves. But let me give you a few examples. Um, I grew up in a strongly sexist culture. I just did. Those sexist messages were coming at me through TV and through advertisements and through things I heard in school. It was just part of the culture of my growing up. It wasn't mean-spirited. It was just, just part of the deal. Um, and I think being bombarded with that and, and not, uh, not adopting some kind of bias would be really difficult. Uh, it would be like, and, and I'm, I'm going to steal something from abram Kendi, be like standing in the rain and not getting wet. So I think as we look at our, our biases, I think we need to be somewhat introspective about that um, and, and try to understand these biases from an objective point of view. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And I think the uh, the work that we've done through our DEI community, uh, committee and or task force and the work that I was doing in the racial justice committee has enabled me to at least get a handle on what that might, might sort of look, look like. So I think, I think that's, that's number one, is try to be aware of the biases that we naturally carry and to adopt a growth mindset. Um, At the very same time, I think we need to keep our tendency to defend in check. Um, This, this is, can be a little threatening. Uh, honestly, if 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 you don't adopt uh, a growth mindset because uh, you can be challenged on things that maybe you've just haven't really thought about much in the past. And that can drive perhaps even a sense of shame or defensiveness, and that, of course, creates completely the wrong uh, direction of movement that we want to create. We want to create a direction of movement toward these issues. so i think I think being aware of of that tendency to defend, that can be uh, really important too. Uh, something that I've learned um, that seems kind of obvious, but something that really has been brought to my attention is speak up if you see people abusing their power with others. And clearly that can go to racist or sexist jokes, for example, but it can go to simply small things like microaggressions too. Um, and I think if we can be interrupters of those kinds of behaviors, I think that's something we can do to be an ally as well. And and there are several other things we could go on, but maybe I'll stop there if you want to explore any of these in any more depth or whether we want to just kind of continue.
0: Well, that was spot on. And uh, I would have given you an applause if I could. But um, yeah, there was a a lot of things that that you said. Um, First of all, your definition for an ally, I think is spot on. It's definitely somebody who can recognize your position as a leader. And you said a very... Critical word privilege, which it, it's almost a taboo word, and almost a word that sometimes I try to stay away from because it creates divisiveness. But as you mentioned, it is difficult to accept sometimes your position that you have a position of privilege. But something that we've mentioned, um, we discuss in our committee sometimes, or even with me with other colleagues, colleagues, it's okay to have some privilege. You know, you don't have to be ashamed to be privileged. I. I kind of try to see it as I am Puerto Rican. And because I'm Puerto Rican, I'm an American citizen. So I have the privilege to be an American citizen as opposed to um, some other of my Latin Americans, brothers and sisters. So to me, that's a privilege. And it's something not for me to be ashamed that I'm able to come to this country. Right. So the same thing with you. you you've you you know grown this firm and you have that privilege and that's OK. Um, but it's difficult for people to kind of accept that there's a privilege and not feel maybe guilty about it. So there's, there's a lot of thought behind of the words that you said and, and for somebody to actually get to that position. So, yeah, I, I agree with 100% with everything that, that you said. Accepting bias is very difficult. You know, you said that you grew up in a sexist culture. And I think, you know, a lot of people did, you know, it's just part and inherently part of our culture even today. So just kind of accepting those things and, and catching yourself is is really important. Have you felt kind of a follow-up question as you kind of got into more um, maybe racial justice work or even with more diversity, equity, inclusion work? Have you caught yourself maybe with a thought or a passing thought or maybe an idea or a word or a phrase that you're like, hmm, this is not 100% right. Let me let me check myself.
1: So. Let me give you kind of a funny example that occurred to me uh, a few weeks ago, actually, when I was um, driving with my, my wife. And uh, this is one that um, I'm going to use this word, but I'm not going to use it quite in the same way that it might normally be meant. I was ashamed of. And so I'm I'm embracing that because it's part of this growth mindset. Um, and this is just, a, just a, an example. But when I was growing up, I remember driving with my grandfather, who I respected dearly. And uh, we would be driving down the road and we'd see somebody driving erratically. He would say, ah, women drivers. And I'll tell you, I'd heard that and that was sort of ingrained in me. And to this day, uh, I still have that reaction. And I had that reaction when I was driving with my wife. We were looking at somebody driving poorly. And and I thought this to myself. And I I said, I'm just going to name this. So I said it out loud. I said, you know, this can't believe what I'm thinking. I, mean, I know there's nothing inherently you know, different between men and women that caused one to be a good driver or a bad driver. I, I know that I've known that for my entire adult life. But look at this reaction that I have from something that was sort of ingrained in me when I was a child uh, that, you know, at that time, nobody meant any offense by it, but that's the kind of thing that you check yourself by. And and once I became aware of these types of biases uh, sure, they they uh, they come up, uh, you know. I guess maybe not frequently, but enough that it catch, catches my attention. And and if we adopt that kind of learning mindset, and we can sort of see this type of behavior, these types of thoughts, in that framework, and we can name it, I think that that goes a long way to beginning us down that path to be able to uh, make the kinds of corrections that we need to. Uh, engender more inclus- inclusivity in the uh, uh, in, in, in our work or in our home or in our communities.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it sounds simple, but that transfers so well, even into our industry. I mean, I, uh, one of the starting lines in our article was that society has taught us that engineers and scientists are a male job. Nobody intended anything bad by it, maybe, but it did affect our industry and you know, to an extent, it affects our society because we have lost talent. So even a simple thing like that, it does transfer um, into our industry in, in a very powerful way.
1: I, I think it does, Veronica, and I, I think that uh, this is something we need to uh, think very hard about how we're going to change that narrative. Um, how do we, how do we do that? You know, in early on, and I, I think there are. A lot of things people are doing, uh, reaching into uh, school, uh, secondary schools, for example. But that's the kind of narrative that we really need to, to change deeply if we're going uh, going to change uh, our industry.
0: Well, actually, that's a good segue for my next question. Is kind of how do we change the industry? So we know that our industry is not diverse, but unfortunately. This leaky pipeline, as I like to call it, is something that's prevalent within you know corporate America, that we don't see enough women as leaders. So, as uh, the McKinsey company has reported, entry level women and Osats, you said in the beginning of our podcast, are pretty equal when they enter, but then when they start getting to the senior positions, they it drops off significantly, and women of color tend to be the lowest on that rank, only three percent. And also, worse other studies also show that women leave engineering at a much faster pace than men, one study show that women leave one in four compared to one in 10 of men by age seven or eight of their careers, which is probably around the time where there's, you know, if you start your career when you're early 20s, it's probably around the time we start having children or settling down. Some people think that that might be because of, you know, Women wanted to be in the household, but that did not end up to be the case based on more research that we found. But that really goes into my question. I can I can deviate easily from that. But really, my question is: What can you or maybe other allies can help to recruit and retain these women and underrepresented groups, and and better this pipeline so we have a better talent pool?
1: Again, a, another really big question, and and one. With no easy answers. Um, if we look on the recruiting end of this, uh, clearly our firm is always recruited openly. Uh, we we, uh, uh, you know, we have never been biased in the types of people whom we recruit. Um, we uh, welcome uh, qualified candidates uh, from from all groups. But at the same time, you're 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 right uh, about this in, in general. Um, most the candidate pool. Uh, tends to be white in our, in our area anyway. Um, And, uh, and then you're right, as we, as we uh, move people along in their careers, um, we, like most of the industry, tend to lose more women than men. So it is, it is a leaky pipeline. Um, On the recruiting end, um, I, I think from what we've been thinking about and what we've been learning about It isn't just as simple as saying, well, let's just recruit more people of color, for example, or recruit women differently, uh, because that just won't work. I think you really need to start first by examining your firm to see whether you truly have an inclusive environment and where there's equity uh, in the firm, Uh, because if there isn't, uh, you could recruit all you want, and and I don't think people will, will stay. So I think I think the issue around recruiting. Certainly, uh, uh, we've thought about recruiting strategies that could broaden the places we recruit from, and I, I'm certainly we we will do that, um, and uh, that could be very important. But I think for the first step is to make sure that the firm we have is is inclu- inclusive uh, firm. Um, let Let's just let's before we talk about retention, maybe just stop there, and should we. You know, Think about that a little bit more. Or should we move on to the issue of retention?
0: No, I think there, there's a lot to say. I mean, something that you mentioned that I actually haven't discussed too much about. It sounds like you guys are trying to create an environment where people are attracted to. So the, the, this is, if I, if I am a candidate, I'm looking at different firms. Sandbird Head sounds like a company that might be very inclusive and, and therefore more attractive as far as recruitment. Well, and then there's there's a second part of, of what you mentioned was let's just ask for more women of color. Well, it gets tricky, right? And I'm sure you've experienced this too with, with HR. You can't necessarily tell your recruiter, hey, I only want people of color. I only want women. It doesn't really help that way. It doesn't work that way for the most part. But you can scrutinize more your recruiters and make sure that your, your pool candidates, and that might take more work, but that your, your candidate pool of people or a better representative. That's what it sounds like. Where you're going through,
1: I, I think that's the key: is making sure that your candidate pool is fully representative. You're getting the, the broadest candidate pool you can possibly get, and and that I think that is 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 key. And so I think really examining recruiting practices, uh, uh, that, that's a good a good step in that process. But but again, it, it falls back to making sure you know: do you have an environment where women and people of color are underrepresented groups, where they're going to thrive. And if if you don't, better start there because uh, that's really much more fundamental. And I think at Sanborn Head, I think, it, I think we're, we, uh, we, we do have a culture that's inclusive uh, where we do have equity. But I think, to be perfectly honest, there's more we could do along those lines. We started as a firm by four white guys. It was a white male monoculture. We're way more diverse than that now. But if we were really honest with ourselves, and we've been looking at this very carefully in our DEI group, we still retain a lot of the elements of that white male monoculture that started almost 30 years ago. Again, a lot of improvement, a lot of change at the time. But there are things that we're looking to do strategically to change the trajectory so we can become an even more inclusive a
0: workplace. Well, as far as that answering the question of recruitment, um, I do want to mention that a lot of times when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, it feels very doom and gloom. I think it's important to also kind of celebrate the, the the wins, even if they're small wins. So you guys started with just four white males, but now you you have a female in your board, um, in your board of directors, and your your office is a lot more representative you know, that, that's a win. And I think it's important to also recognize those things.
1: Yeah, I, I think so too, Veronica. And I'm really proud about where we are and where we've come to. And all I'm saying is I think we've got more work to do and and that's great. Yeah, we all got uh, more work to do. There's always some always areas to, to improve. So um, uh, I, I think that the fun thing is to see some of the passion that we're beginning to generate Around the kinds of things that we could be doing, as I said, to change the trajectory of that a little bit, and and move from you know that sort of uh, using the the terms in a in a paper that we uh, that we've used as a basis for some of our planning from exclusive club to truly inclusive organization, we're on the path, and we have ways to go to go to uh, to get to where we want to be.
0: So you've created a firm that. That people, many people that look like me, feel a little bit more comfortable going to work in. So now, how do you retain that underrepresented group that you know that we're seeing in the pipeline that are leaving in, in greater numbers than others?
1: That's a really,
0: it's a tough really question.
1: Tough question. Um, it's one that that I and other senior people in the firm have wrestled with with it for a long time. Um, I, I read an interesting article. Um, about two or three months ago, published in Harvard Business Review, and it looked at this very issue, and it looked at it a little bit differently than I think I'd ever been thinking about it before. Um, it um, it was somewhat eye opening, and um, it looked at uh, pr- particularly looked at professional service firms, so firms you know like ours. Um, they said there's a narrative in these firms, it goes something like this. High-level jobs require extremely long hours. Women's devotion to family makes it impossible for them to put in those long hours, and their careers suffer as a result. The The linchpin to that narrative is a belief in women's natural fitness for family and men's for work. Both suffer. And what the article argues was the um the, the really long hours culture built into uh, the, the work that many of our firms do is detrimental to both men and women, and just in different ways. And what they argued, whether one believes it or not, that unless you cure this long hours culture, you're really not going to get at the, some of the roots of retention issues that we're seeing. And again, uh, the article talked about this in terms of both men and women. It just affects, it tends to affect men and women differently. So I thought that was very interesting. And and to be honest with you, I haven't really taken that much further than just thinking a lot about it, because uh, if it's right, that's a pretty big problem to tackle. Um, So it isn't just simply if if, if it's right, it's just simply not making policies where, you know, perhaps you're allowing uh, people to go part time or or certain family leave policies. Those are all important. Don't get me wrong. I I believe in them. But this says it's something more fundamental at stake here that is more fundamentally needs to change if we're going to really cure the leaky pipeline uh, situation.
0: Well, you said a couple of things that are really important. Um, number one, there are there are many surveys, especially from the Society of Women Engineers, that surveyed hundreds of women on why they left engineering. Um, the long work hours are, are definitely up there. And like you said, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's only a female thing. It can definitely affect men too. Um, I mean, my husband is also an engineer. I can see that we're both in the same boat. Uh, But at the same time, that doesn't mean that a a woman might not want to work long hours, might not want to travel. And a lot of times, you know, some leaders, some managers might think, oh, well, Sally has a kid. I'm not going to send her to this uh, out-of-state trip because she's going to say no. You know, I think it's important to also consider, you know, what the women actually want to do or what the underrepresented group actually wants to do. And to that, I think you or doing it correctly because you're not thinking what I'm going to do. You're thinking, what do they need in order to stay?
1: Right. And I think there are a lot of assumptions that are just made about men and women uh, that aren't necessarily always correct, certainly on an individual-by-individual individual basis. And, uh, again, if we get back to the biases that we started talking about at the beginning of the conversation, some of those beliefs are simply rooted in our long-standing biases. And they simply play into our behaviors at work. So we really need to examine that and think about this. Uh, these are the kinds of things that are pretty fundamental to change if we really want to make these, these
0: changes. I've kind of been involved with, uh, you know, in situations where I kind of throw myself in the hat. And I've been told pretty much, I don't think that's a good idea because you shouldn't be traveling that much. Meanwhile, in my own household with my, my father, my husband, my family that lives nearby, they're all like, we'll support you and you can do whatever you want. You you can travel, you can work in Orlando. And unfortunately, because of that, you know, I ended up leaving that company, not only because of that, but that was definitely kind of almost a nail in the coffin.
1: Yeah. It's important.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, it was a company that I did like working with, and um, but I I did needed um, that trust, I uh, and also for my managers trust in in what I was looking for uh, as my as I was becoming a manager myself. So that communication wasn't quite there, and that and I think that there was a big, um, like you said, a big judgment called made just because I, I had a young child at home. So it, it was difficult. And but if we take that objectively and we just look at that situation, you know, that company, you know, had me as a manager leaving and now they have that position to fill. So the question that I keep asking to myself is not only, you know, it's not only like how the people maybe like me that are represented as underrepresented are being affected by diversity, equity, and inclusion, but how much is a company? So even if you don't care about this you have to care that you want to retain your employees and you want to retain the best employees and you don't want to spend time training an employee just to have them leave. Right. So that's why retention to me is so important. And I think to me is so tied into diversity, equity, and inclusion and to having allies as well. As if I will have an ally, then maybe that ally would have said, no, she she can, she says that she's fine with travel and she can travel.
1: I think you've just you've just given a great example to what what an ally would do, and I think that's the kinds of things that we can do: step in, disrupt, and uh, uh, you know, advocate. I think those the, it's 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 really it's really critical. And everybody is different, and everybody's tolerance for long hours is different. But we have certain attitudes which are really ingrained in our narrative that our traditional narrative that. Uh, Tend to, tend to under underlie a, a lot of this, I believe, and so I think examining that, starting there, is really
0: important. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and you're absolutely right. I've worked with so many people, and I have, you know, men, other male colleagues that tell me, nope, I have to be home at five o'clock because I have to go take care of the kids, and I, my boss, she's a female, she is at work at six thirty in the morning and leaves at five o'clock. So everybody's a little bit different and I think it's it's important to give everybody the flexibility to do their job um, and trust them that they they can do their job properly.
1: Well you've also mentioned this is also another interesting thing a little bit tangential but but maybe not so much Uh, and that's that's the world that we now hopefully are starting to emerge from uh, once we get COVID under control and that is a world where there's a whole lot more flexibility in terms of how we work, where we work, and when we work. And uh, for me personally, um, as an older white guy, uh, I think it's terrific. I love the flexibility, but I can imagine that uh, people who are all different ages and different, whether you're caring for elderly parents, whether you're caring for children, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, suddenly you've got even more flexibility to be able to do that and to also continue working and interacting and, and moving along in your career. And, and perhaps, perhaps in that respect, uh, the flexibility that the, our newfound flexibility, which I don't think we're gonna be retreating from, um, is gonna be a good thing for retention. I certainly see the potential for that to be the
0: case. No, I, I think so too. And the funny thing is talking about kind of, you know, what people might think about male versus women. I personally like coming to the office I like interacting with people I like seeing um, my supervisees talking to them mentoring them my husband he likes working from home a lot of his colleagues are in different states and he just feels like he gets more done working from home so it's almost opposite as maybe a lot of people might think um, so that's why it's important just to understand your your workforce and your employees um, so you know even in this question I think we're we're touching in a lot of items that um, that we've mentioned before.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So it, it is difficult like we mentioned before and, and you mentioned it is difficult to, you know, introspect and, and kind of cast yourself and, and not be ashamed of maybe having past biases. And you know, as we talked about before, we've seen a lot of surveys where and, and these are year-long surveys. It, it was conducted over two years in, in the US and in the UK. That show that a, a large number of managers feel uncomfortable participating in common job-related activities with women, like mentoring, going to dinner, going or a business dinner, going to a uh, travel, you know, for work, that sort of thing. So, which is really disheartening, and, and it seems like it has not gotten any better, and that just limits opportunities for for women to be exposed, or not only that, but to receive more mentorship. Um, so what do you think is the most effective way to engage and have more male allies?
1: When I thought about this statistic and I've seen this published, um, in a number of places, particularly, um, relating to, uh, to, uh, the number of women who left, left the workforce, uh, you know, just during COVID and, and um, uh, issues around, um, you know the office maybe becoming more more male than it's been in years, and how how that the you know things are sort of going in, in the wrong direction, and the challenges there. Um, that's that's again another 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 tough one. Um, I, I think I would hope that that men could be persuaded by the, the business argument that um, increasing the diversity of their workforce just brings more people. Uh, into the tent, so to speak, allows um, their businesses to grow and to thrive. And that there's a really strong, strong business argument to be made to sort of get over that issue of being uncomfortable um, with women or underrepresented groups and uh, and embrace the idea of allyship and mentorship uh, to help people move along. Um, I'm not really sure what's driving this. Uh, there may be some concerns over the Me Too movement, for example. I, I really don't know. Uh, but if that's the case, um, and uh, there are people who are, you know, uncomfortable knowing, you know, where the bounds of harassment are, there's harassment training. And our, our firm does, as many firms do, we, we provide uh, harassment training, which is, which is really important, I think. Uh, hopefully it's not that, but, but if it is, that's someplace you could turn but I think um, I think as we continue to evolve this whole DEI, uh, our thinking in DEI and our, our understanding of DEI, hopefully we can engage more men in the idea of, of allyship, again, both for women and for uh, under, other underrepresented groups. And, um, and maybe talk through some of these things and t- kind of think through some of these things together to try to figure out how we can solve that problem. But, but again, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, it's tough to change people's, people's attitudes and ways of thinking and tough to change concerns they may have. So, um, uh, but, but clearly something that's very important to work on.
0: Yeah, I think you've hit it right in the head. Um, I, I simply say that this is just good for business and it makes sense. So like you said in the beginning of the conversation, you know, it's not only the right thing to do, but it, it, just, it just makes sense. It, it makes business sense too. Um, you keep more pool, you keep more people there 's more competition among your your employees or your candidates, whether that 's a uh, you know just positive competition, but it also just keeps more people and and just increase your talent pool It can elevate our industry so I think that argument alone can help at least people bring them in into accepting diversity equity and inclusion and hopefully the The goal would be to have some of those people that accept that this is an issue and it's an issue that doesn't, that is gonna help our industry if we do address it. But then I guess the next step is to also having more mentors and more allies. So I guess to follow up that question, if there is maybe a a senior leader that you know that hasn't yet um, started maybe a mentoring program or haven't yet mentored somebody or doesn't really seem as an ally. What would you? What advice could you give to that person and say, like, hey, um, let me talk to you about this and see how um, how we can actually have you be a mentor as well.
1: Yeah, I. To me, it's it's probably not quite as obvious uh, because it's harder to see it from my perspective. Um, you know, from again, people, the the men that I know in this company certainly would. From from my perspective, I, I think. Would be very open, open, and uh, in fact, do uh, mentor women and, and people of color, um, and perhaps uh, it's something simply that um, I, I can't see as easily given my position. And so, I think in the first instance, we would need to understand. Uh, I would need to understand it more, and, and I'm not quite sure how I'd go about that. But it seems like the kind of thing that you know, perhaps we would want to dig into more to see whether is this. Is this a problem here at our firm? Um, and then, if it is, that be the po- process of discovery. And then, I think we could begin to uh, to think about how we could how we could begin to address it. Um, you know, more more globally, as we were talking here, I'm, I'm wondering whether GBA could have some programming on this. it Seems like a a, a a great a great idea for some kind of program at one of GBA's conferences. Um, because I think I think and I believe that you know most men, most white men want to do the right thing and want to want want to, want to be an ally in the right way, and maybe they just don't quite know how. I'm only gauging that based on the statistic that was cited, not based on my personal observation. But if they if they don't know how, then you know perhaps um, you know something GBA could begin to have.
0: Yeah, I think you're giving us some some ideas for our own committee. Um, there are a couple of things that we're doing in our own committee. We're, we're putting together a best practices document that at the time of this recording hasn't. We're still in, still in the works. Um, hopefully, we'll have something out by the fall. Uh, but, you know, some of the topics that we're including in our best practices is having some sort of mentorship program. Um, GBA did publish a uh, best practices to start your own um, mentorship program, I think it was It was quite a bit. I think it was like 10 years ago. So it's been some time. Um, But that's just a a little tidbit there for GBA. But I mean, absolutely. I think just providing that resource to our member firms and and give them some encouragement of how to go about this. I mean, it's difficult. And I think in your answer, you kind of alluded the same thing. You have to be introspective, see what your warfare's actually look like um like you said maybe in your position you're not seeing everybody day to day but that's why it's important to understand surveys and data and and see what your employees actually need maybe you do have enough mentors maybe maybe you need more in certain areas maybe there's a particular office that doesn't have enough mentors um so it really ties back to um to understanding your your workforce which we we discussed in length in in my second episode so it's, just, it's interesting how all these things are tied together.
1: They, they, they are. And, and by the way, again, you mentioned the survey. And this is one of many reasons we ran the survey, is to try to sort of tease out, at least initially, some of these questions. And um, I, I wish I could report back to you what that survey said. I just very, very high level. We just got the results back, and we'll be looking at it in more depth with our DEI uh, task force in a week. Um, but this is, the, this is the kind of thing we were trying to tease out with the with the survey, and we'll, we'll see how successful we are.
0: Well, one thing to mention that I, I wanted to say later, you said that you have 85% response and and that you actually had a, a big number of people in your workforce that said that they do think that this is important. I think a lot of people are scared of surveys because they think that it's going to air all the dirty laundry. But I think some people, and also with my conversations with Christina, my second episode, some people will do a survey, and they're pleasantly surprised. They they have good news. People people want to get more involved with uh, DNI. People have ideas. So, you know, it can get a little doom and gloom, and I I'm definitely there. I I see that percentage of three percent women of color in C suites, and I I feel it, um, and I want to break that statistic. But I think it's also important to kind of celebrate that, again the small wins. So. You had a great survey. Hopefully, that empowers other companies and other people to start, you know, surveying their employees and hearing from them, and, and not feel like they're going to shy away from them because they're afraid of the results.
1: I I, I hope so too, Veronica. And, and you know, the, I I don't see doom and gloom. By the way, I'm I'm really excited about this, and and not just from the perspective of myself or our firm, but our industry. Uh, I, I certainly talk to a lot of my peers uh, throughout the industry. And frankly, there are a lot of really fine firms that are ahead of us and, and uh, others who are certainly jumping on and, and are very excited about the kinds of things that they can do and are doing. Um, and and I, I think the, uh, the, the future in that regard uh, holds a lot of great possibilities for all of us. So I I think this is an issue that over the past several years, we've become more aware of. I think people are embracing it more. We're all on that path and certainly making mistakes as we go. But as we discussed, if we can be open to our mistakes and learn from them, um, boy, I I think there's just a a lot we can do here and a lot of breakthroughs we can make.
0: Have a sense of humor, like you mentioned, which I think is, is a great point. Um, sometimes you just you, you just have to kind of almost own it and own your mistakes and and I'm not necessarily saying laugh it off, but not not go to a place where you feel shame of maybe past mistakes that you've done. Um, just say like, well, I've definitely learned, I've grown, and I can see things differently now. I have a different perspective.
1: Yeah, shame shame is is uh, the uh, enemy of allyship, and um, it's something we need to uh, to keep in mind. Um, it uh, is something that we can all easily feel if we're called out on something. But really, if we can treat it as learning experience, this is from a guy who finds this difficult too. I'm not saying that it's not, uh, because certainly as I've uh, in, engaged in some of these discussions more broadly in my, my uh, own uh, geographic community and my business community, you know, I find myself saying things that I, um, uh-oh, and, and I'm trying to learn. But I'm trying to keep an open mind about it. Not always easy, but I think if we can't do that, then then we're not going to be able to make much forward progress.
0: Well, I think you've really answered what it's meant to, what does it mean to be an ally? Um, somebody that recognizes their privilege, recognizes that you're in a position of power and that you're different from other people, but can also kind of be introspective and, and, and really see where you can make any changes to better, to better our industry because at the end of the day in my perspective is it's that's what it's all about I, I love our industry my husband's a geotechnical engineer and so am I and um, we just want to see this industry thrive and be sustainable uh, I think that's, that's a very key word sustainability making sure that we're attracting people and I see our interns coming in all excited about college and you know sometimes I wonder are they gonna if this gonna last you know are we gonna be able to retain these people? Um, it is a difficult industry in and of itself, like you said, professional industries. We work so many long hours. And not only that, we, ne- we can't also put on top of it, be having microaggressions, like you mentioned, having a wholesale work environment. Then unfortunately, kind of tying everything back together, a lot of the surveys from women leaving the industry, kind of going back to recruitment, not only save long working hours and maybe too much travel or not enough opportunities, but also, you know, microaggressions. Um, so being an ally also means to stand up to some of those microaggressions and, and sometimes sweat the small stuff instead of not sweat the small stuff. Things that might, for you, might not be um, a big deal, but you can recognize that somebody else might feel uncomfortable and and saying something. When you speak up as a leader, um, somebody else might feel more comfortable to speak up to. And, and that just creates a more inclusive um, culture. So that kind of really wraps things up, and and we've been talking for almost an hour. So I want to put some closing thoughts. So, just give us some recent experience and in, in your involvement with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Is there anyone that has inspired you? I mean, we, you mentioned um, racial justice. It sounds definitely like an inspiration to be more involved with DNI. But anyone in particular, or any other thing that you might want to share with us?
1: Um, something that. Uh... When, when um, my wife actually uh, began leading this racial justice initiative in our community, and it was something uh, that she picked up um, uh, at first, reluctantly, only because of the time commitment that she foresaw, that turned out to be more than she could have imagined, and the determination and passion with which she pursued that, and um, my privilege of being able to sort of go along and, and act as a sounding board, you know, night after night and meetings that we went to. And and um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, um, she's been a real inspiration for me and, uh, and truly, um, uh, you know, really began to open my eyes and get me on a path that was very different than anything I could have imagined before, um, something I simply wasn't aware of. And uh, so uh, I, I'm going to give her a lot of credit uh, to, uh, to to getting me, first of all, interested and then passionate about um, issues around DEI and racial justice.
0: Well, I think that's wonderful. Well, Charlie, um, I think that was a great conversation. I think you you've really uh, hit a lot of things in the head and and really answered what it means to be an ally and and what we can do to, um, you know, evolve our industry and, and elevate our industry really. Um, so I really thank you for joining us, and um, if you have anything else that you would like to add?
1: Veronica, I agree with you. I, I love our profession. I'm dedicated to our profession. Uh, I think it's a, a fantastic profession, and like you, I want to see it uh, be vital, and I want to see it sustain itself for the long term. So, uh, And I, I believe all, all of the peers that I interact with and have over the years feel exactly the same way. And so that, that, again, gives me a, a, a lot of optimism for the future. There's just a lot of work to do, but, hey, there always is, right? So thank, thank you for uh, providing this opportunity to talk to you today. I
0: really appreciate well, it. Well, thank you thank you so much for your commitment. And uh, I really look forward to hopefully meeting you in the fall conference. Um, hopefully you can be there. If not, you'll hopefully you can be there virtually. Um, we'll be presenting in the fall conference and panel discussion on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion with myself, um, Mike Hutchinson, he's CEO of Geoengineers and one of his consultants, Jamal Carney. So um, that's what's coming up next in our podcast. We're actually gonna be recording that and releasing in our podcast, but thank you so much, Charlie. And I look forward to more conversations in the future.
1: Thank you, Veronica.
0: And that concludes this episode of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion podcast series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. If you like what you heard, Please subscribe to the GBA podcast and leave us a review. And remember, improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in the geo profession is up to all of us. Thank you for listening.